It is the early 19th century, and in the northeastern regions of India, nearly 400 women are burned alive on the funeral pyres of their dead husbands every year. Some do it willingly, some are pressured by custom, and many are forcibly thrown into these fires. This ritual is called sati. The British colonial government, previously unwilling to get involved in the customs of their native subjects, finally had enough. In 1829, the practice of sati was banned. In response, Hindu priests protested the ban. Speaking to British commander Charles James Napier, they claimed that sati was an important part of their culture, a custom that must be respected. In response, Commander Napier said, This burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pile. But my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them. The British Empire, at its height, stretched from Canada in the west to Australia in the east. It contained everything from tropical islands, invisible on a world map, to mammoth territories, previously empires in their own right. The world has seen many empires. There's almost no one who has not heard of the Roman Empire or the Mongols. And there are few indeed who have not heard of the largest empire of them all. At its height, the British Empire contained over a quarter of the world. The sun never truly set on the British Empire. So how does one discuss the largest and possibly most influential empire the world has ever seen? I started this episode with the story of Sati. There are other stories I could have told to highlight the brutality of empire or its charity, but that wouldn't have served my purpose. The British Empire, I must be clear now, was not a paragon of goodness. Its conscience is not clear of crimes against humanity and its, uh, and its subjects, but neither is it a villain. The beauty of empire and studying it is how multifaceted the British imperial project actually was. It was brutal, yes, corrupt, machine-like in its expansion, but it was also adventurous, honourable, charitable, and truly magnificent. It should not be a surprise that an empire containing over a quarter of the world should be nuanced. But too often there seems to be a simplistic demonization of the British Empire in particular. In Africa, especially, British colonialism is painted with the same brush as the brutal imperial projects of the Belgian Congo or German Namibia, well, German Southwest Africa. Yet, empires are all different. The British have their own slaughters, but we cannot paint them with the same brush as Japanese's Nanking or the Belgian slave states. So I return to my previous question. How does one discuss the largest and possibly most influential empire the world has ever seen? This episode won't be explaining every bit of nuance and inch of the empire. Not even the thickest history books can accomplish that. Rather, I have a specific purpose in mind. I want to give an overview of the British and why their empire was in simplest terms, beneficial to the world. Does this benefit make up for all their crimes? Perhaps, perhaps not. I have my own views on that. In terms of influence, the most obvious legacy of the empire are the words coming out of my mouth right now. The ironically named lingua franca of the world is English. This isn't accidental. I am not British. I've never set foot in Britain. I am South African, or Capian, or Capetonian, if you will entertain my separatist leanings for the moment. The point is that I am not a native of the British Isles, yet I speak their language. An estimated 1.5 billion people speak English. Only around 66 million of these speakers come from the language's homeland of the UK. A further, a further 328 million, uh, million come from the UK's hegemonic offspring, the United States. 
even if someone doesn't speak English, they will encounter it somewhere in their life, in film, in literature, in science. The language of the world, even if it's not the majority language spoken, is still English. I speak English and I live where I do because of the British Empire. And I am only a single individual in a sea of billions who have been touched in some way by the world's largest empire. But why did the British Empire begin? In a way, the British stumbled into their empire. The original intent of the Caribbean and North American territories was commerce. Joint stock trading companies, most famously the British East India Company, were established to administrate these colonies. The intent was money but also a lot of jealousy and spite. The Spanish and the French, long rivals of the British, were much more intense with the imperial project and were already running large empires on mainland Europe and overseas in South, North and Central America. The growth of British power in the Atlantic and expansion of their colonial holdings was, in a lot of cases, dedicated to spiting and enabling the sabotage of French and Spanish colonies. Privateers, effectively pirates working for the British crown, were sent to raid Spanish and French fleets, stifling their colonial ventures. One such privateer was a Captain Henry Morgan, now the face of your favourite spiced rum. Morgan was a skilled privateer who spent his life raiding Spanish colonies and ships under the auspices of the serving the British crown. He was so, so skilled that when his men attacked Old Panama City, the capital of Spanish America, in 1671, he was able to kill between 400 to 500 Spaniards while only taking 15 casualties among his own men. Unfortunately, the attack had commenced during a time of peace between Spain and England. As punishment, Morgan was called to England to face arrest. Instead, King Charles II knighted him. The English gave birth to the Golden Age of Piracy, a subject extensive enough for its own episode. And this is important to note when we study the origins of empire. Commerce and profitability is a very simple answer. The American colonies, Adam Smith argues, were an asset, but folly to run from London. Endeavours by colonial companies were definitely meant to lead to profit for British merchants, and the focus was not truly on imperialistic expansion. But the empire didn't remain a simple empire of extraction. As it progressed and took more and more territories, its vision changed. Companies were put under the contr direct control of the government, and were increasingly replaced by administration that were less like businesses and more like nation-states. By the end of empire, it was well known that empire itself was unprofitable. Polidor Bryan in the book Mammon and Empire writes, The majority of the English people cheerfully and even proudly shouldered the tax bill for an empire from which they derived very little in the form of tangible, personary gain. In the later years of empire, many of its intellectuals tried to understand their place in the world and why they did and should control such a large chunk of it, an incredible cost to their own subjects. The White Man's Burden, a poem by Rudyard Kipling, an avid imperialist, was written to exhort the United States to take up their obligations as a colonizer of the Philippines, but it also serves to highlight how the British viewed their own empire. For many British imperialists, the act of empire was one of duty. They truly felt that they were going to the world to make it a better place, Commerce was a part of this, but not simply to line the pockets of trade companies. Rather, the British colonial vision viewed God and commerce as inseparable. The role of Britain and her merchants was to spread Christianity and free trade across the world. 
while there were doubtless many merchants who cared only about profits there were plenty plenty who viewed their task as an admirable duty to bring peace god and prosperity to the world the imperial adventure was one of civilizing the world because the british believed that they knew best and it was their responsibility as such to spread their way of life to every corner of the earth as displayed in the introduction to this episode this civilizing mission was not one of pure charity it was often handled with extreme violence brutality and coercion and in no place was this more obvious than in the abolition of the slave trade since the colonization of the americas all the colonial powers had been engaging in a triangle trade this triangle trade as is implied by the name a three-step process europeans purchased slaves from african slavers on the west coast of the continent often called the gold coast or the slave coast these slaves were shipped to plantations and colonies in the americas they would work there producing commodities that would then be sent to europe these commodities would be sold and some of that wealth would be used to purchase additional slaves rinse and repeat the British were involved in the slave trade and participated in the philo philosophical atrocity of attempting to justify it. They were not so different from the other Europeans in their disrespect for Africans and their desire to use slaves. But there is a fundamental difference between the British and all the other empires when it came to slavery. The British chose to abolish it. In 1807, the abolition of the Slave Trade Act received royal assent. A millennia-old practice was made illegal by the world's largest empire. But why was it profit did business have more to gain from workers who could earn wages and spend that money perhaps but the British had more more than enough customers already many business interests also opposed the abolitionists vehemently so even if it was economically um, sounder to abolish sla slavery it wasn't something that big business was supporting at the time was it despite the colonial competitors Spite is a British pastime, after all. But at first, the aim was, pu was purely to ban slavery within the empire. The Spanish and French were to be left alone. There was nothing the British Empire had to gain from abolishing slavery. No material gains, no competitive advantage, nothing. Except that a lot of British people felt that it was the right thing to do. Through the work of the abolitionists, slavery turned from economic necessity to an intolerable atrocity. With the ascent of the Abolition Act, the decades-long campaign to abolish the practice was put into motion, but it met heavy resistance. In May 1823, Thomas Foxwell Buxton, the Society's representative, introduced a motion in the House of Commons that the state of slavery is repugnant to the principles of the British Constitution and of the Christian religion, and that it ought to be gradually abolished throughout the British colonies. Even approaching two decades after the act, people around the empire were still not respecting, respecting the abolishing of slavery. But through the work of the abolitionists, the culture of the times was changed drastically to reject this foul practice, contributing to an existing and uniquely British idea of liberalism. Intent was not enough to stop slavery, and in this sense, only the British had the capacity to stop the practice over the Atlantic. The Royal Navy, the most powerful navy in the world at the time, was needed to enforce the ban. And without it, the abolition would have just been hot air. Abolition cost the empire a fortune to enforce and gained them nothing of material value, yet they did it all the same, and it was backed up and enforced through brutality. The British truly did view themselves as a moral empire, and they enforced this morality. Civilization and the rule of law was an iron fist at times. 
In their North American colonies, the British alienated colonists who would soon call themselves Americans by prohibiting waste and expansion as it would chew into the territory of native peoples. The British had the capacity to wipe out civilizations, yet they chose to act honorably in dealing with Native Americans, for the most part. The USA, on the other hand, let its continental empire run roughshod over natives, participating in repeated genocides of Native people. The, the British were soon kicked out of what became the USA, but they didn't stop their self-given mission to police what they believed to be unjust. Dutch administration in the Cape led to sanctioned commandos of Dutch settlers and Khoi militia, these commandos were designed to protect the frontiers of the Cape Colony. Instead, they tended to engage in genocides of the native San, a hunter-gatherer people. This way of life was incompatible with the ever-expanding, thorough lifestyle of the Dutch and Khoi. An estimated 300 to 400 San were killed per year between 1770 and 1798. This was encouraged by the local authorities. The killings only stopped as much as they could in such a wild country, when the new British authority made a concerted effort to stop the genocide. British intervention in southern Africa is one of controversy. The Afrikaner Nationalist Party of the apartheid fame despised British control. In fact, elements of the Afrikaner population were so anti-British that they almost sided with the Germans during the First World War, despite being a British dominion. The history of the Afrikaans' identity is brutally entwined with the British Empire. The Great Treks, which saw the creation of Afrikanerdom, as Dutch farmers travelled north to seek greener pastures was in a response to the British administration of the Cape. The reason? Well, the apartheid curriculum liked to teach that the British were oppressive rulers and portrayed the trekkers as heroes travelling to a land of freedom. There were definitely a lot of analogies made comparing the trek to Moses and the Jews escaping Egypt. But what did the British really do? We've already seen that they prohibited genocides of natives, and we know that they also worked to abolish slavery. Farms in the Cape relied heavily on slaves, often brought in from the East Indies. And while these slaves were different in the way that they were treated and handled in comparison to the American plantation slaves that many listeners are probably more familiar with, they were still slaves nonetheless. The British abolished slavery and enforced better working conditions and made many other decisions that made life for a slave-owning Cape farmer unpleasant. Many of these people left, going north and forming the foundation of what became the Afrikaners' identity. The civilizing mission of the British chose slaves over white farmers. In many ways, this can be viewed as virtuous. I think it is. But, pe but a lot of people familiar with the latter age of the empire will know that this South African story takes a much darker turn. The Anglo-Boer War at the turn of the 20th century, split between two conflicts, was a war fought for the same reasons the empire began in the first place. Gold was discovered in the new Afrikaner republics, and the British wanted it. Citing a mission to fight for the rights of eightlanders, non-Afrikaners who had fewer rights in Afrikaans republics despite outnumbering the native Afrikaans population, the British engaged in a brutal conflict with the Afrikaners. But despite their global war machine, the guerrilla tactics of the Afrikaners were too effective. The war became protracted and costly for the empire. A military commander, Earl Kitchener, was assigned to command the war effort in 1900. Kitchener was and probably is the most efficient, machine-like, and coldest of all British military leaders. War for him wasn't a game. While many officers saw war as an honourable pursuit, an adventure, a competition, Kishner saw war as industry, cold, heartless, with one sole aim, results.
Kishner turned to returned to the refugee camps, or dedicated to housing POWs and civilians who had lost their homes in the war, into concentration camps. He implemented a policy of scorched earth, driving Afrikaans civilians off of their farms and cutting off supply lines to the Afrikaans resistance. Those driven off their now decimated farms were put in concentration camps. The aim was to contain the civilians and POWs, POWs and finally pressure the republics to surrender. The aim was never to kill civilians, this much is certain despite propaganda, but intents and execution often don't align. By the end of the war, as a result of maladministration, overcrowding and disease, between 26 and 28,000 people died in these camps. Approximately 22,000 of these deaths were children. Some writers predict this death toll to represent 10% of the total Afrikaner population at the time. Kishter is not heralded as a hero by the British. He won them their war, but there were very few cheers for this machine-like commander who many regard as dishonorable. Charles Fitt, the commander who lost the infamous Battle of Slandawana in the Anglo-Zulu Wars, is less reviled than this man, the most efficient of British killers. But why? Imperialism is the art of expansion, of, of spreading your colour across the map. Kishner was probably one of the greatest men when it came to spreading the red of Britannia across the globe. But then why was he so hated? The empire is complicated. It is inevitable that such a large institution will face such heavy clashes of personality. But in other empires, these clashes were between elites, rival senators in Rome, mandarins vying for influence in China. But Britain, in a large way, was different. Of course, there were plenty of disagreements among elites. But what makes Britain so special, self-contradictory and complex, was that its own citizens were often its biggest critics. Emily Hobhouse, an English woman of no particular elite birth, travelled to the Cape Colony in 1900. What followed was a fevered campaign drawing the eyes of the empire to this African war and to the plight of the women and children that the British soldiers had imprisoned. Hobhouse's story is a compelling one, the type of story that gives you hope in humanity. She was faced with criticism, deportation and bans by the British authorities, but persisted in opposing the inhuman conditions of the concentration camps and bringing them to an end. The British caused the atrocities that were the Boer concentration camps, but it was a British woman who ended it. Empires in history are often authoritarian, heavy-handed. They collapse under their own weight and oppression. But Britain, despite its monarchy that in the last few decades has gained celebrity status, was fundamentally a liberal democracy. It faltered in its mission of civilization quite a lot, but this never went unnoticed. As Britain's biggest critics were themselves, and in the largest of ways, this is what made them a beacon of human rights, freedom and peace to the world. If nothing else, Britain provided a framework to the world. Perhaps it was wrong to force its vision on foreign nations, but for the women burnt alive in funeral pyres, the countless souls enslaved, and the people brought out of the darkness, the British vision wasn't one of colonial oppression. It was liberation. The empire was far from unitary. Some of the largest resistance to banning Sati in India, actually, came from the British people themselves. For every imperialist wanting to civilize by force, there were others who wanted to leave people alone. Both voices were heard dramatically within the empire. It's easy to personify an empire or nation. The Germans can easily be stereotyped as rigid, militaristic and professional. 
the French as, well, French. And Britons often get stereotyped as haughty and arrogant. But this arrogance is understandable. At one time, the world sang to the tune of the British Empire. But that tune wasn't the ironclad and sturdy fist of a despot, but rather the many cries and criticisms of a free people. Upon defeating the Zulus in the Anglo-Zulu War, Zulu King Sitswayo was captured and imprisoned on Robben Island. Yet the British public was so enamoured by this king who had defeated them in battle that they demanded his release, and he, was, and he was released. The British were arrogant, but that arrogance was informed by their place in the world and had a strict set of ethics in which they governed their actions. It wasn't about winning. It wasn't about defeating your enemies. It was about playing a game, honourably and well. If we are to discuss the British Empire as beneficial, we should also discuss the role of empire. It's inevitable that stronger nations will use their strength and skill to become stronger. For some, it was sufficient that they rule for the ideals of rulership alone. But what is the role of empire in a world that wants to at least pretend to be ethical? The following is a quote calling for supporting the British cause during the First World War. We are, above all, British citizens of the great British Empire fighting as the British are at present in a righteous cause for the good and glory of human dignity and civilization. This is not an unusual quote. Many British imperialists would have said something similar quite often. It's who said it that is unusual. Gandhi said that. The man whose greatest legacy is the independence of India from British rule. At one time, Gandhi was a fervent supporter of the British imperial mission. Many things changed, but that is a discussion for another episode. What is important to see here is that the imperial vision wasn't just that of some arrogant white men. It was shared by many unlikely individuals of the empire. So what is the role of empire? Um, I feel that I'm saying this a lot, but that is a topic for another episode or even a series. But for now, I would say that the role of empire is simply peace and stability. It is to become such a powerful hegemon that no smaller power will risk causing a conflict. And the British achieved this. The Pax Britannica, the British peace. While the British ruled the world, we experienced one of the most peaceful periods of human history up to this point. It is only beaten probably by the present day. But even then, our modern peace has the institutions that the British created to thank for its aversion to global conflict. Or at the very least, the British burst into the nuclear superpower of the United States which keeps the world from plunging itself into random acts of conquest. Most of this episode has been discussing the pockmarked successes and virtues of empire. It isn't a clear-cut tale of a perpetual hero, but rather a vibrant and often self-contradictory island enacting its will upon the world. There are no doubt many sins of empire that I have missed. The Irish, even before the English established their empire over the, the British Isles, are a testament to the brutality and the villainy of the empire. In the decay of the British Empire, many mistakes were also made. As empires fade and decay, they often kick against their inevitable march of time, and their oppression grows. The slow and sometimes fast of Br uh, decline of Britain after World War I and II led to one of the largest crimes of empire, borders. Especially in Africa, the fast decolonization of colonial subjects left many nations that still exist today. But these aren't natural nations. They were imposed by the empire, often against the true will and needs of the subjects who lived there. 
While under imperial control, these problems were seldom noticed. As an imperial subject, you are expected to be a global citizen. But as you become a citizen of a smaller nation, you start to lack the order and hegemonic influence of the empire that once policed your land. Nigeria and South Africa are two prominent countries that arguably should not be countries. Britain pushed together tribes and nations that were once independent and then left them as singular countries, forcing people who, let's be frank, really don't like each other into the same political institutions. And without the gavel of imperialism to keep them in line, you've gotten civil wars, oppressions, ethnic cleansings, genocides, and all the tirades and atrocities of post-colonial Africa. Some of the biggest crimes of colonialism was how they ended it. Empires fall. Entropy is a political as well as scientific law, and institutions inevitably decay. Empires fall in many ways. They have many similarities in the way they decline. Neil Ferguson in Empire writes, Before 1914, the benefits of empire had seemed to outweigh the cost. After the war, the cost suddenly, inescapably, outweighed the benefits. The British Empire collapsed under its own weight, and it hastily let go of its subjects. But this episode is not about the decline of the empire. But that is an extremely interesting topic, and I will definitely be discussing the topics of imperial fatigue and decline in a future episode. Many historians do not like alternative history. But I find it important to ask what-if questions. The role of history is to inform after all. And how can we learn from history if we don't question it? My question is, what would the world look like today if the British Empire had lasted longer? If it had not sacrificed its empires to starve the 20th century to fight German imperialism? Would the world be a better place? I think it would be. Nations which desired independence would still have gained it, eventually, but the decolonization process would most probably have been cleaner, less bloody, and more in line with the actual needs of the new nations. In discussing the empire, we have spared through centuries of history across continents and oceans. This is what makes British history so enticing. It isn't the history of the world, but it gets close. But let's return to the original question. Was the British Empire beneficial to the world? It gave us our language. It broke many of our chains. It brought us the rule of law, commerce, liberal democracy and freedom. And it kept the world safe for so long. You may still doubt the empire was beneficial, but you cannot doubt that for better or worse, Britain built the modern world. Many books, journal articles, videos and documentaries informed this episode. Most notably among them are the following, Neil Ferguson's Empire and his other book, War of the World, then Paul Johnson's History of the English People, and finally, Jeremy Paxman's Empire, a documentary available on BBC. The history of the British Empire is a long and exciting tale, and I've barely scratched the surface. I hope now that you'll be encouraged to go out and read more about it, form your own ideas, and possibly shout at me in your own podcast. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support the History Society podcast, please follow us on Facebook and share this episode on social media. Stay tuned for all things history from me and the other historians at the History Society.